Okay, Patrick. So far on this season, we've been covering the early history of food delivery, how American Chinese food pioneered that process, and how Big Pizza fine-tuned it for efficiency. But in both cases, we've stumbled upon this crossroads. What do restaurants, especially smaller independent restaurants, what do they do now that so much ordering and delivering takes place online? Right. For restaurants, relying on third-party delivery platforms like DoorDash or Uber Eats is definitely one way to go, but it's not an easy path for sure. Yeah, you and I don't personally know what that's like, but I will say as customers, we're also a bit skeptical about how people delivering the food are treated, especially after hearing in the news about how hard it is to make a living wage as a delivery worker. Shoppers and drivers for Postmates, DoorDash, and Instacart are rallying at the three companies San Francisco headquarters today. If I had to pay market rate rent, I would be homeless right now. Today, she and other gig worker drivers are attempting to deliver peanuts because that's what they say they work for to the executives at Instacart, DoorDash, and Postmates. We're going to spend our whole next episode talking about what it's like to deliver food as a gig worker. But before we unpack what that means, I want to know how we ended up with this system in the first place where restaurants are at a crossroads, workers are demanding better treatment, and customers like us are questioning our choices. So I want to start with a story from fall 2012, almost a decade ago. It's where all good stories start. Yes, the the year of Linsanity, of Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, Hurricane Sandy happened, and Barack Obama and Mitt Romney uh, ran for president. It's also the year that a science writer named Bruce Barcott happened to step into startup history. Hey, I'm in my Prius studio here. Um, Bruce is a science writer who's covered everything from true crime hiking mysteries to hantavirus. It's a virus spread by rodents. Not my fave. Bruce also wrote a book on marijuana called Weed the People. Weed the People? That's what his book's called? Yeah, it's all about the legalization of cannabis. Okay, that actually sounds interesting. Anyway, Bruce is on the road spending the night in Palo Alto, California, and he's hungry. Only he's got pretty limited options. It was 2012, you know? There weren't a whole lot of dedicated delivery services out there for food. So Bruce heads to ye old internet for assistance. It's as simple as putting in, you know, Palo Alto delivery food into a Google search. That's it, you know. He pulls up a website called paloaltodelivery.com, and he's not really registering what it is or anything, but he calls a number on the website to place an order for pad thai from a local place called Siam Royale. And he doesn't know it yet, but Bruce has just placed the very first order on the site that would later become DoorDash. DoorDash wasn't the first delivery app. Grubhub, Seamless, and Postmates were already on the scene. But now, DoorDash is the biggest third-party food delivery app in the U.S. It owns over 50% of the food delivery market. This is Dish City, where we tell stories about food to understand where we live. This season is about food delivery. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. On this episode, the rise of the delivery app and how third-party delivery platforms made every food deliverable. Patrick, when you open DoorDash, what do you see? There's tacos, there's salad, there's poke bowls and donuts, which none of these were previously delivery foods. And I would argue that they're still not great delivery foods. We disagree. I also see seltzer from CVS. You can get dish soap and milk bones from PetSmart. 
Back in 2012, DoorDash was paloaltodelivery.com, and it wasn't available as an app. It was just a crappy little website that its founders built in under an hour. You know, super, super simple, ugly. Like, honestly, we, we weren't really expecting anything. We just launched it. This is DoorDash's co-founder, Stanley Tang. Here he is speaking at a lecture at his alma mater, Stanford University, in 2014. Uh, it was my junior year at Stanford. This was fall quarter. And at the time, I was really passionate about, you know, how do you build technology for small business owners? Stanley's now DoorDash's chief product officer. But in 2012, he was taking a class about how to launch a startup at Stanford. He and his classmates, who would later become his fellow co-founders, needed a business idea. They needed to find a problem they could solve. So they went around talking to local business owners. I sat down with Chloe, the owner of you know, Chantal Guion, um, a macaroon store in Palo Alto. And it was during this meeting when Chloe first brought up this problem of, of delivery. Chloe brings out this really thick booklet where she had handwritten pages of delivery orders, many of which she had to turn down because she just didn't have the bandwidth to do them all. And when she did accept delivery orders, it was a bit of a nightmare. You know, she had no drivers, and she was the one who ended up having to personally deliver all these orders. So Stanley and his classmates are like, huh, this is interesting. But they couldn't start an entire company based off the needs of one macaron maker. So they do more research. Over the course of the next few weeks, we talked to, you know, around another 150, 200 small business owners. And when we brought up this idea of delivery, they kept, you know, agreeing with us, saying, yeah, this is, this is a really big problem for us. You know, we don't have, you know, delivery infrastructure. Um, it's such a huge pain for us. There's, there's not any good solutions out there. And which, which led us to wonder, you know, delivery is such a common thing. It's such an obvious thing. Why hasn't anyone solved this before, right? Creating a delivery company seemed like a winning idea. But keep in mind, Stanley and his co-founders have only really focused on the needs of restaurants. They needed to figure out if customers would order delivery from their random company instead of asking the restaurant itself. So we thought maybe, maybe because people have tried this in the past, right? But they failed because there wasn't consumer demand for this. So we thought, how can we test this assumption we had? You know, we were just a bunch of college kids at the time. You know, we didn't own trucks or delivery infrastructures or, or anything like that, right? We, we, you can't just spin up a delivery company overnight. But Patrick, here's the thing. That line that you can't just spin up a delivery company overnight, like Stanley's right, they weren't DoorDash yet, but he and his classmates did kind of spin up a delivery company overnight. We spent about an afternoon just putting together a really quick landing page and and I went on the internet, I found some PDF menus of you know, restaurants in Palo Alto, um, stuck it up there, and then had a phone number at the bottom, and, and, which was our personal cell phone number, actually. And, and that was it. All of a sudden, we got a, got a phone call. You know, someone called, they wanted to order Thai food. All of a sudden, meaning that very night. On the other end of that phone call was Bruce Barcott, the science writer passing through Palo Alto. And Bruce probably didn't realize that he had just called some college kid's cell phone. When Stanley tells this story to a class of Stanford students, it's like he still can't believe how quickly the idea caught on. And we're like, oh, wow, like, this, is, this is a real order. Um, like, you know, we have to do something about it, right? So <laughs> we're like, OK, like, we're not doing anything right now. 
uh, Miles will just, let's just stream by, you know, Siam Royale, pick up some Pad Thai, and let's, let's deliver it to this person, and, and let's try to learn how this whole delivery thing works. And, and we did, we delivered to this guy in, up in Alpine Road. I mean, oh, how did you hear about us? You know, what, what, what did he do? He told us he was, a, he was a scholar. And then he handed me his business card, and instead he was the author of a book called Weed the People. And that was like our first ever delivery, right? It was like, it was like the best deli first delivery slash worst delivery you could have asked for. Um, we, we couldn't make this stuff up. When I tell Bruce that he was the first person to order from DoorDash's founders and that his pad thai order made their business idea real, he didn't believe me. But then I told him that DoorDash's founders remember him because of his very memorable book title. It's so funny that like you exist in the minds of these company founders as like a very pivotal moment and you just, you don't remember it at all. <laughs> that's why, that is so wild. Oh, that's so great. For Bruce, this night was entirely forgettable. He stays in a town overnight and calls in a delivery dinner. Very unremarkable. But for DoorDash's founders, this was the beginning of everything. These students created a service for a class project. They wanted to see if there was demand for delivery in Palo Alto. Bruce calling the day they put up the website made that clear. Yes, there was demand. Look, it makes a great origin story. This guy who is the weed dude uh -huh. and... You know, who better that to make the first order than a guy who's got a little bit of the munchies, you know? Bruce is a fellow journalist, so he loves a good story, and he's really jazzed about being part of DoorDash's early days. And the origin story of any company is kind of, it's critical. It's, it's I mean, it's literally foundational. Like, you, the, the myth of how this great company first started, like, my father used to work for J.C. Penney, you know, and they their origin story was James Cash Penny and his single, you know, mercantile somewhere in Kansas or something like this, right? And God knows whether that was actually the case because life is messy, right? It's not perfectly uh, formed. It it goes through weird permutations. The man behind JCPenney actually opened his first store in Wyoming. But Bruce's point is still totally true. The company's origin story is the stuff of lore. Think of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak building the first Apple computer in a garage in Los Altos. Or Rick Rubin starting Def Jam Records in the 80s out of his NYU dorm with Russell Simmons and signing on LL Cool J, who was a high schooler at the time, as their first artist. Even if these stories of a company's early days are a little overly romanticized, they're still really important because focusing on the scrappy start of a flashy company keeps you from thinking about all the problems the company has to deal with now, problems they may have started. Once a company takes off and business starts to get more complicated, these origin stories are supposed to remind the public that these companies have humans at their center, supposedly. It is hard to remember that sometimes. You joke, but tell me, why is it hard to connect something like DoorDash to its human roots? These delivery apps are just big tech companies. Like, if anything, I see the delivery driver when I order the food, but the app itself is a bit of a faceless name. Right. It's not like you're going to a restaurant, saying your order out loud to a server, watching them, you know, walk back to the kitchen and put in that order. You don't see the chef behind the kitchen making your food or a buster picking up your plates or a bartender behind the bar. 
Yeah, I mean, that's still happening when you order delivery on one of these apps, but, like, you're completely removed from the process. You don't get to see it because it's, like, behind an algorithm now. Yeah, and that's all by design, right? Like, DoorDash and other third-party delivery apps, they're not replicating restaurants because they're not really selling food. They're selling logistics. Like how Domino's isn't really a pizza company. It's a tech company. Yes, DoorDash was actually about 10 years behind their competitors when they started, but tech gave them an edge. When Stanley and his co-founders started delivering food, they used the iPhone's Find My Friends app to track each other, making their deliveries. Oh, so this is kind of like the, like, precursor to being able to see your driver on a little map as they're turning onto your block to deliver your food. Exactly. And a couple years before DoorDash was founded, the company Square became a thing, so... They help streamline mobile payments, which helps DoorDash's founders process credit card orders on the fly. And this kind of technology, Find My Friends, Square, like it just wasn't around when companies like Grubhub launched in 2004. So even though DoorDash was like a decade behind its competitors, these new tools help them take advantage of tech and make delivery more streamlined. Here's DoorDash co-founder Stanley Tang again. In fact, at one point we were growing so fast that Square actually shut our account down because we were under suspicion for money laundering. Um, I mean, think about it. We're getting small chunks of like $15, $20 orders coming in at a rapid pace. Um, It was, yeah. And luckily, my co-founder, Tony, worked at Square. So he just emailed some buddies there, and uh, everything was solved. So, but wait, what about cornering the market? Didn't like Grubhub and Seamless and all these other apps already have customers? Yeah, um, in cities, they definitely did. These existing platforms were popular in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, but they weren't in the suburbs. It turns out there actually is demand in the the suburbs for convenience, and it's not just a city thing. This is Tom Pickett. He's DoorDash's current chief revenue officer. When their competition was duking it out in major cities, DoorDash went elsewhere. Even though that density is nice in a city, uh, what, what you can find in, uh, in, in the suburbs is you have less traffic. <laughs> and so you can actually cover more, more turf uh, in a given amount of time. And, you know, probably labor costs are the highest in the city and they're lower in the suburbs. So, so you, can, you, you can make the economics work a little bit better uh, in, in that as well. Okay, so in a city, I'd like think of some person working late, like living off of delivery in their office or something. But... Who's their typical customer in the suburbs? You're totally right about who's attracted to delivery in the city. It's a lot of young, working professionals. But in the suburbs, you had families. Like moms and dads who just were really busy and just wanted the easy button. And so so that that was the big unlock. And, And what you saw DoorDash do over many years was really expand into the suburbs at a rate much faster than any of the other services that were primarily focused in the big cities. Expanding in the suburbs made DoorDash one of the major third-party delivery apps, even though it started roughly a decade after their competitors began. By the time the pandemic hit the U.S. in early 2020, DoorDash led the pack. They captured about a third of all food delivery sales. Okay, so I, I think I have an idea, but what happened during the pandemic? Well, as you and I both know, the pandemic severely limited restaurants, right? They were either shut down or they had pretty intense restrictions on how much in-person business they could do. At the same time, lots of people were staying home and complying with lockdown orders, so delivery took off. 
Every delivery company I could find data for saw increased revenue during the pandemic. But DoorDash really led the pack here. It went from controlling a third of the food delivery market to half of it. And they tripled the money they took in orders from the year before. In a field that is notoriously difficult to actually make money, they posted $23 million in profit during the pandemic's early months between April and June. Jeez. The pandemic was the equivalent of like two years of growth. Once again, here is DoorDash's chief revenue officer, Tom Pickett. The last year has been an acceleration of the business. The way we think about it is that it's kind of like a pull forward of the future. We feel like, you know, we were 2020 and suddenly it turned into 2022. Restaurants suddenly started calling us in a, in a much greater rate. And the same thing on the consumer side, like a lot of people tried delivery for the first time during COVID. You know, the, the, the world just moved forward a couple of years, at least with respect to this idea of convenience and delivery. And Ruth, I think you're part of this trend, right? Like you ordered delivery for the first time during the pandemic, I think. Yeah. And not only that, but I actually used DoorDash for the first time. Really? What did you get? Uh, I'm pulling it up on my email right now. I ordered the chicken parm florentine and the mashed potatoes from Unconventional Diner on February 16th. Wow, that's very fancy. Good for you. How was it? How did it hold up? Oh my God, the mashed potatoes were the best mashed potatoes I've ever had. And I actually ordered it, I think, on Caviar, but it turns out Caviar is now owned by DoorDash. So when I placed my order, I got a little notification that was like, your dasher is on its way. And I was like, "Uh, okay. At the end of 2020, DoorDash filed to take the company public. It was one of the best stock market debuts of the year. And by the end of 2020, the company was valued at $71 billion, which made it more valuable than Domino's and Chipotle combined. That says so much about how people think about these companies. DoorDash's debut on the stock market was like the cherry on top of their pandemic Sunday. But for all these like very impressive numbers and all this huge growth, like I really cannot let go of one thing. What's that? These apps don't make money. Wait, didn't you say they turned a profit during the pandemic? Yeah. DoorDash may have turned a quarterly profit for the first time in 2020, but on the whole, they spend more money than they actually make. Last year, their busiest year yet, They ultimately lost $149 million. And I think what's wild about this is that that number, $149 million, is probably, like, good in the eyes of investors because they lost over $500 million the previous year. (laughs) And they're not alone. Grubhub lost money last year. Uber lost money. These companies are basically still in the business of trying to eliminate competition and control the market. Like, that's the game right now. Not actually making up the money that was initially invested in them. This makes zero sense to me. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the huge reasons why delivery doesn't make sense to me either. Like, the model that third-party platforms are running on, gig economy labor, it's not profitable. At least it's, it's not yet. So how does this work? How are they still in business? There's this whole ecosystem that's cropped up around startups that need money and venture capital firms that want to grow their money quickly. 
So these venture capital investors, or VC investors for short, they write startups these big checks as a high-risk, high-reward investment. These checks used to be in like the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then these investments grew to millions of dollars. And now the kind of money that we're talking about can be in the billion dollar range. This is like the amount of money that like doesn't exist. That's how I feel about this. You'd think that investors would start making money once the startup becomes profitable. But as I was saying earlier, it can be really hard to actually make money. So instead, the model has kind of morphed, and the new goal for a lot of companies is to eventually go public, so investors one day own a part of that company with stock. That's how a lot of them recoup their investment. Okay, so if the company isn't making money, then why would you invest in it? And how do they keep paying people? Like, doesn't profit matter at all? I don't get it. Ultimately, profit doesn't not matter, but a lot of investors look for other things. A unique idea, good management, and growth. Intangibles. It's like we're talking about sports. I don't know enough about sports to be able to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of companies like Uber have been around for over 10 years, and they've never turned a profit. But Uber is a publicly traded company now, and you can't deny that for better or for worse, they've changed transportation forever. And that's what they offer investors. Impact, not profitability. I'm not always sure why there's so much interest from investors in fast-growing uh, companies that are usually losing money, as, as many of these are. This is Ellen Hewitt. She covers startups in Silicon Valley for Bloomberg. And she says investors value other things beyond profit, at least when a company is in its early stages. Some of the ways to grow faster um, are not always the most, like, profit-minded. It's usually about growth, um, you know, growing the number of customers, the amount that they spend, um, you know, profit can come later, um, grow fast first. And then uh, once you grow kind of quickly, another way to keep growing is to buy competitors. So you've seen that happen in food delivery a lot where um, DoorDash bought Caviar, Uber bought Postmates, um, and you see these, these other deals coming up. Um, and that's part of how DoorDash grew to be so big is because they, they bought Caviar. The way that I've been researching it and the way that Ellen writes about it, it just feels like these companies are basically given a billion dollar runway to test out a hypothesis of whether their company can make it. But in order to actually be successful and be competitive, they have to cut costs somewhere. And that often comes at the expense of workers. Here's Ellen. When you see a news story that says like such and such company raised a ton of money, a lot of people congratulate the startup but actually it's kind of a burden that has just been placed on this company, which is like that size of that check that they've just received represents the expectations that they now have to meet from their investors. Um, because it's not like they're just, that's not just like money that's a gift. This is money that comes with an expectation that this is going to be returned in a bigger pile soon, like in less than 10 years. And so there, there is this sense of like, heightened expectations, heightened pressure that, look, I, I don't, I'm not saying that this, you know, this is the only reason that people do exploitative things when they build a company. Um, of course, there are many reasons, but I do think this is one. And it's unclear to me if there's a better alternative. It's unclear to me, like, you know, how we could change this. It sounds like we basically just got into, like, an investment arms race. A little bit. I think... Many startups start because they think they will have a new way to solve a problem 
And at the same time, they do want to be the biggest one. I mean, this is this is what they're going to hear from investors. You know, they probably started off thinking, okay, we have like a slightly better, maybe we have a better algorithm, maybe we have a better system for dispatching our drivers. Um, and also, we'd like to win. We'd like to be the biggest one. So at this point, we've talked a bit about DoorDash's motivations. They say they really wanted to solve problems for small businesses. Stanley Tang was answering the need of a local macaron shop. His co-founder, Tony Hsu, who worked that stint at Domino's, he feels a sense of kinship with restaurant owners. After he moved to the States with his parents, his mom worked at a restaurant in Illinois where Tony washed dishes. I think what's interesting about DoorDash's origin story is that restaurants were prioritized from the beginning, like thinking about what the customer wants came second in their process. And delivery workers, they weren't really part of the origin story at all. Yeah, not Stanley's version anyway. They may have been prioritizing restaurants at the beginning, but now they have to balance the needs of not just restaurants, but customers and drivers. They're the middleman in what's called a three-sided marketplace. All sides of this marketplace are groups of people, the restaurants, the customers, the drivers, and they all have very different needs. In order to respond to the needs of one group, you might end up creating challenges for another. So with all these different groups to juggle, I wondered if DoorDash was even satisfying the needs of restaurants, the people they wanted to help in the first place. Tony, DoorDash's co-founder and current CEO, he said in the past that he wanted to build a magic wand for restaurants and their problems. So coming up after the break, is DoorDash's magic wand working? So as we've covered in previous episodes, using third-party delivery platforms may not have made restaurants any money, but they kept people employed. But that still doesn't mean that partnering with third-party delivery apps is a simple choice. DoorDash, you know, they're not perfect. Paulus Belay owns Motown Square Pizza. You heard him in our last episode about pizza delivery. I've had customers call and say like, hey, my pizza has just never shown up. Uh, we'll send out two pizzas for two different orders and one order gets delivered to the wrong spot. Uh, even though, you know, everything's like labeled, it's frustrating, uh, when I'm like super busy, limited staff, uh, it becomes like a whole process where my attention has then shifted to, I got to call DoorDash. I got to figure out like where someone's pizza is or just like a handful of headaches. Lucas Sin was in our episode on Chinese food. He's the chef of Junza Kitchen and Nice Day Chinese in New York. His restaurants are on every third-party delivery app available in New York, and he manages all these orders via a service called Relay. We're very grateful for uh, delivery drivers and delivery companies to be able to take that off of our hands because it's a necessary part of the business model. On the other hand, of course, um, we've all read about these massive oligopolies in the delivery space that oftentimes um, uh, are a little suspect in terms of uh, how they treat their small businesses and how they treat their delivery drivers. So um, it's, I think it's a complicated topic. Um, and uh, it sucks that if you have to do delivery and you aren't able to do your own, that you would have to rely on some services. But at the end of the day, some services are better than others. 
Tim Ma is the co-owner of Lucky Danger in DC, and he was also in our Chinese food episode. He uses Talk, which is a software to process orders, and Talk partners with DoorDash to do delivery. Yeah, it scares me. It's been well documented that these services do take a large chunk of your revenue. And it's not like they're making money either. So it's like, are we feeding into like the system that's going to kind of destroy us all? So we've got like everything from like Paulus's case of missing pizza to like huge issues of feeding a beast that will like kill the restaurant industry. Yeah, like that's the range of questions for these restaurant owners. Ultimately, though, they've all decided it's better for them to be on these apps than not. And then there are restaurants who don't want to play this game at all. I am actually a third generation Arizonan. I'm very proud of Arizona. Didn't appreciate it when I was younger. Wanted to be everywhere else in the world. Uh, New York, Chicago, DC, San Francisco, you name it. And as I got older, I learned to have this uh, deep appreciation for where I'm from. This is Lori Hashimoto. She owns Hana Japanese Eatery in Phoenix, Arizona. Delivery was not a big part of her business pre-COVID, but when the pandemic hit, she shut down dine-in service and delivery grew up to like 25% of her business. Not that we're making money at this time, but we are delivering one order at a time. Unfortunately, if people have to wait, they'll have to wait. To go and delivery times on food at Hana uh, on a weekend night have been up to two hours. All of Lori's delivery orders are handled in-house. She's even driven food to customers herself. But she has not, and will not, partner with any third-party delivery platforms as a matter of principle. Not too long ago, Lori noticed that she was getting a bunch of phoned-in orders from one credit card. And she quickly determined that this was a third-party delivery app that had put her business on their platform. So keep in mind, Lori did not put Hana Japanese Eatery on the platform. They just decided to list her. Only when their delivery drivers would show up, Lori found that they were pretty unprepared to deliver her food. She makes sushi, and one guy showed up without a cooler bag. We live in Arizona. It's the desert. It's hot. And I don't want sushi going into somebody's car being delivered to somebody when I'm not quite sure what number stop my food is. Another time, a delivery driver just failed to handle her food with any care at all. They had dropped to-go boxes before they left and didn't take a second thought about it and pick them up and walked out the door. Uh, and to me, it didn't show representation of my business. It didn't show the quality that I would like for my customer to receive. So it became very difficult in knowing that those people do not they, they don't work for me. They work for the company in which they deliver for. So the care was not there. Lori understands that things aren't easy for delivery drivers either. They're just trying to make ends meet. But she just can't trust her food in a stranger's hands. And then there's the pricing. Third-party delivery apps take a huge chunk of each order, sometimes up to 30% based on what services they're offering to restaurants. And there's the price differential between what it takes to order from a restaurant directly and order on a platform. Wait, so which app listed Lori's restaurant without telling her? For these stories, Lori did not want to say which app it was, but she also said that every major third-party delivery platform has done this. They've all put Hana Japanese Eatery on their websites and apps. They did this like without 
her permission? Yeah. Patrick, this has been normal for a long time. As a restaurant, if you don't sign up for these platforms yourself, either directly or through some point of service software like Paulos, Lucas, and Tim, these platforms just list you on their app anyway. It's a way of recruiting restaurants who aren't on their apps yet. They try to show you how much money you can make if you join their service. Only once you sign up, depending on where you live and what kinds of services you opt into, you can wind up owing up to 30% off of each order. In addition to Lori, I've heard stories from restaurants about this happening on several platforms. But companies are starting to walk this policy back. Uber Eats says they take restaurant listings down if the owners request it. And when I emailed DoorDash, a spokesperson said, across the country, we are no longer adding restaurants to the platform without a partnership agreement. I kind of hate this. Yeah, it's it's weird. And there are a lot of things that feel probably pretty weird to people like you and me and, you know, everyone else who doesn't realize that third-party platforms are running off the same tight margins as restaurants. They have to figure out how to make their business grow. So maybe they start listing restaurants without asking first in order to increase what foods customers can order. Or maybe they charge restaurants 30% of every order they deliver to pay for drivers. And maybe they incentivize drivers to work full-time to meet the demand from customers, but only pay them as contract workers. Delivery drivers may not have been a key part of DoorDash's origin story, but the way they're treated now is still a big question mark for a lot of people. Remember Bruce, the guy who placed the very first order on the website that became DoorDash? His order proved to DoorDash's founders that there was a need for delivery. I asked him if he uses DoorDash now. You know, are you loyal to DoorDash specifically, or do you use other apps? I wouldn't say I'm loyal to DoorDash, and I don't know that I would say I'm, you know, loyalty is a strange thing. I'm not. Bruce went on to tell me about other companies he's loyal to and what it takes to earn his trust. Everything from REI to Lyft to this local burger place in Seattle called Dick's Deluxe. It all comes back to whether or not he feels like he knows the company's values. And so, you know, maybe we're coming back full circle to that idea of the origin story, the myth, you know, how this company was founded and why it was founded and the values upon which it rests. And um, that's maybe part of what plays into my decision about which delivery service to use. And I just don't know enough about those delivery services to say, oh yeah, that's my, that's my company. So you asked about loyalty and what it would take to earn Mm -hmm. a degree of loyalty to DoorDash or another delivery company or delivery app over, over um, its competitors. And right now I think a lot of that has to do with any sort of awareness that I as a consumer have about how those apps and those companies are treating their employees. Are you talking about these so-called contract workers, these gig workers, or are you talking about employees as defined by these companies? I guess I'm talking about the gig workers because those are the workers with whom I come in contact with. You know, those are the workers that I come face to face with. Next time on Dish City. I just basically have to turn on the app and hope and pray that a customer tips at this point. Because without tips, this this job is not um, is not sustainable. They're like, oh, DoorDash, America's Kitchen. Yeah. I'm like, 
you know, America needs to give me my money for this order and pay me <laughs> equitably to deliver this food. Are you ready to dash? Ready to dash. Let's open up the app. And then it's, oh, here we go. Ooh. We got one. This episode of Dish City was produced by me, Ruth Tam. And me, Patrick Fort. Our managing producer is Ponzi Rutch, and Mike Kidd mixed this show. Mona Cashby is WAMU's chief content officer and oversees everything we make here. If you loved this episode, subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our work by leaving us a tip at wamu.org slash supportdishcity. Any amount counts. Thanks so much. And special thanks to Lauren Saria, food, dining, and nightlife editor at the Arizona Republic, and David Rosenthal, co-host of the Acquired podcast. If you're interested in doing a deeper dive on the history and business practices of DoorDash, check out their episode on the company. You can email us your questions and stories about delivery. Our email is dishcity at wamu.org. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at dishcity. See ya. See ya. See ya.